Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This season of Strong Opinions Loosely Held is brought to you by Lean Cuisine. I've got a lot of opinions, and here's one. Sesame is everything especially the sesame chicken from Lean Cuisine's Marketplace line, which is made with the kind of ingredients that I like to keep in my own kitchen. Natural chicken, no artificial colors, flavors, or preservatives. Visit leancuisine.com backslash refinery29 for a coupon code. And feed your phenomenal with Lean Cuisine. From Refinery29, this is Strong Opinions Loosely Held. I'm Elisa Kreisinger. Research suggests that self-help books don't help us. In fact, self-help publishers refer to this irony as the 18-month rule. The 18-month rule states that the person most likely to buy a self-help book this week is someone who bought a similar, less-than-helpful self-help book within the last 18 months. That book didn't solve their problems, but they're willing to buy another one and try again. And again. And again. And the cycle continues. The main consumer is middle-aged, affluent females living in coastal cities. And what they're getting isn't help. It's hope. Self-confidence is a personal journey. Consciously think positive thoughts, especially during moments when you're feeling down. And we're all made to be perfectly imperfect. Kind of like this crystal. According to the World Happiness Report, the happiest countries in 2017 are Norway, Denmark, and Iceland, followed by Switzerland and Finland. But these aren't the countries where the most self-help books are sold, nor are they the countries where professional psychotherapists are consulted most frequently. What unites the world's happiest countries are freedom to make life decisions, political stability, and faith in an uncorrupt government. According to scientific researchers, the folks in Denmark top the list as the happiest people in the world. And I found out why. Take a look. Because if you have a healthy people, because you have free health care. Yeah. So if you have a healthy people and you have free education, yeah. then you have healthy, well-educated people. And what can beat that? What can beat that? And now you know why we're happy. Everything here. What would our country look like if our happiness was centered in our politics? My name is Jill Filipovich, and I'm the author of The H-Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness. I think pursuing happiness is, is challenging for women because it was never supposed to be really on offer for us. Jill is an attorney turned journalist. And in this book, she argues that the goal of political organizations should be human well-being, not economic growth by any means necessary. I don't know that we just want women's lives to look exactly like men's lives. I mean, a lot of men aren't doing super well either. So if we don't want equality, then what's the ultimate goal? Have a life that is, you know, in pursuit of knowledge and fulfillment. And I don't think, you know, it's asking too much that we live in a society that helps lay the groundwork for that to happen. It's a radical idea and one that suggests that our biggest roadblocks could be toppled by a feminism and politic that focus on happiness and pleasure. 
you know, in the Declaration of Independence, this promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, it was made to a pretty small group of people, landowning white men. Like, that's who that promise was for. And the rest of us were supposed to be doing the invisible and unpaid labor to prop up that system. And when the founders were writing that document, when they wrote The Pursuit of Happiness, the kind of happiness they were talking about uh, is what philosophers call eudaimonic happiness, which is not about like feeling happy every single day. What it is about is forging your own identity, pursuing knowledge, seeking new experiences, even if those experiences are challenging, and becoming kind of a more fully formed and interesting human being. That is a very male pursuit in the United States. It has been men who have been able to think about their identities in that kind of outward-looking way, and it's been on women to sort of be the support system in the back. And so now we're, you know, we're living in a world that, you know, has seen first and second wave and third wave, I guess, feminism. And, you know, where women are kind of much more individually feminist and we have more feminist cultural and social norms, but we still have workplaces and other institutions and political systems that are set up according to this very outdated mode and this outdated way of looking at the world. And it's within that system that women are then trying to pursue pleasure and pursue happiness and hitting inevitably, a lot of walls because it just it wasn't set up for us. So tell me a little bit about your book. Where did the idea first come from? I've been reporting and writing about women and women's rights for 10 years. So writing about moments in women's lives, which are often challenging, sometimes traumatic, and often made worse by our cultural norms and policies. And in covering these kind of moments in women's lives that you know, were sometimes inherently difficult, like sexual violence, but sometimes were just made much more difficult than they had to be, such as abortion or even going to get contraception or having consensual sex, found uh, sort of the same narrative, which is that all of this stuff was harder than it should be and it was less pleasurable than it should be. And it seems like the kind of underlying problem was this very deep cultural hostility, which plays out in our politics, to women's happiness and women's pleasure. And so from that starting point, I was curious, well, A, why? Like, how did we get to this point where we are so hostile and skeptical of women doing things because it feels good or for broader personal fulfillment and not in the service of someone else? And then B, what would our country look like if women's happiness and pleasure was something that was actually centered in our politics? So what would that look like? a lot better than it looks right now. So I think in a more feminist world and in a country in which women had more of a say in our institutions and our policies, we wouldn't see this kind of divide being quite so neat. Um, I think we would recognize that all of us are whole people who perhaps have jobs that are hopefully meaningful, but at least are necessary, um, but also people who have lives and families and loved ones, and that those two things can and should and must in a good society coexist. What keeps us, meaning the United States, from achieving that, you think? So I think part of it is our highly individualistic culture that, you know, kind of really fetishizes this American cowboy going at it alone, this very individualistic way of looking at the world. Those values obviously trickle into our politics. I think another thing that really keeps us where we are is the kind of social traditional conservatism that really, and this is, you know, obviously manifests itself in the Republican Party and our mainstream politics, but that does see an ideal country 
as one in which the nuclear family is the bedrock and the building block of society, that marriages are between men and women and that they are the, for the purposes of procreation, and that does maintain this divide between the public and the private and that has it gendered. And the Republican Party has very much prioritized a policy landscape that often forces families into making very difficult decisions because it incentivizes that kind of family structure, at least for white, middle, and upper middle class families, and creates real penalties for families that look any different than that. So for example, single mothers in the United States fare far worse than single mothers in any of our economic peer nations. Even though single mothers in our economic peer nations face many of the exact same sort of individual issues, so they tend to be less educated, they tend to get paid less, they don't have a partner who's also subsidizing the household income. So when you just look at how much money they're making and the kind of jobs they work, they tend to be pretty similar, whether you are in the United States or whether you are in the UK or France or Sweden or whatever it is. Are those considered our peer countries? Yeah. So countries that are relatively economically prosperous and politically stable. So single mothers in those countries are in about the same position as single mothers here, but far fewer of them live in poverty. And that's because those countries have decided to institute much more robust social safety nets that make sure that they and their kids have enough to eat, that they have time off when they have kids, that they have affordable childcare. And so functionally, single mothers in the United States end up far, far worse off than single mothers elsewhere. And that's a choice we're making. That's a political decision that we have made to punish women who make decisions that certain lawmakers don't like. Universal health care, free university education, and generous unemployment benefits. Are these the keys to happiness? Just take uh, free access to health care, free access to university education, quite generous uh, benefits if you lose your job. Just, just those three things means that a lot of people around the world, if they don't have access to them, will experience unhappiness. And since the welfare state take care of that, we increase uh, the bottom. What about the high levels of taxes that people have to pay? Well, it's true. It's, it's a really high level. But I think what is more interesting is that the really high level of support for the high taxes. If you ask Danes, are you happily paying their taxes? Nine out of 10 will say yes. And are peer societies like Sweden, France, the UK, are they friendlier to social services and that social safety net that you talked about earlier because they don't have this individualistic perspective of the cowboy going out west. You know, I don't think they have the same kind of founding principles we did and the founding mythologies that we have, right? I mean, the sort of the mythologized founding of the U.S. is like Christopher Columbus strikes out and like discovers America, you know, which is obviously wrong and offensive on a hundred different levels. But that's very much kind of bred in to how we see ourselves. You know, Lewis and Clark went west and, you know, were these great kind of discoverers of, of what existed. We're the new world. And so it's a very different mentality around an individual's role and specifically kind of a man's role and a white man's role and what his identity is and what makes for kind of a worthy and interesting life. I also think our, you know, founding history of slavery and of deep and ugly racial divisions also feeds into this. So Sweden and, you know, the Scandinavian countries, Denmark, they have great social, they have a great social safety net. But the more that they have seen immigrants arrive at their borders who are also taking advantage of that social safety net, the more you have seen criticism um, of both the net itself and of these people who are considered like not as deserving because they aren't part of this homogenous in-group. And, you know, that's how the U.S. was founded and constructed. 
women who are thinking about like how can I individually better my own life, obviously I, I do that too. We all want to individually better our lives. And tips for how to do that are great and certainly helpful. Uh, but they can't be the whole story because there's so many component pieces here. And many of the ways in which I think we feel like we are choosing are actually ways in which we are kind of being funneled into a very narrow set of choices and then told it's all of our individual responsibility to choose best. Why are self-help books targeted to women? It has not been the case for most of American history that women were able to forge identities that were about who we are and what we do other than how we relate to someone else. So for a long time, you know, the female identity was I'm someone's mother, I'm someone's wife, I'm I'm a pastor's wife, I'm a lawyer's wife, I'm a doctor's wife. And that is still true to a degree. I think it's much more true for women than it is for men. We do still very much define ourselves by our relationships. I think you see this when women get married and they take their partner's names. You know, you it's a very very literal um, sort of incarnation of not just patriarchal authority, but of the relationship between husbands and wives, which is that a wife is kind of subsumed into her husband's identity. So I think when you're talking about self-help books, there's already this very rich breeding ground for women. Not having a super strong sense of identity is a sort of a standalone individual and having a sense of herself as always relational, which then of course requires being better at it, being a better mother, a better caretaker, a better wife, a better woman. Why do you think men aren't encouraged to find their best selves? I think that men already see the kind of path to identity as their best selves. I don't think anybody has to tell them, go find your best self, right? I think for men, identity has always been really outward looking. It's always been, you know, again, about this kind of like, achievement and ambition and adventure and through like trial and error, figuring out, you know, who you are, pursuing knowledge. For women, a lot of that has always come through men, right? So, you know, you, if you want to be a politician, you've never seen a female politician, you marry the guy who you think might be president. I mean, it's a Hillary Clinton story, right? And so I think it's, it's very new for women to figure out like, what does my identity look like absent, you know, seeing myself reflected in a man? You know, for men, they don't have to see themselves reflected in anybody. I mean, yeah. they just get to kind of go and be right. actors in their own lives. So they don't right. need a book to tell them how. What would a self-help book for men look like? I would love to see some direction for men to how to kind of reimagine masculinity. I think that as successful as feminism has been about reimagining what life can be for women, it has been extremely successful. You know, you're sitting here in a baseball cap and I'm in pants. And we would not have looked like this 50 or 60 years ago. When I graduated from law school, my class was 50% women. That was not the case at my law school 25 years earlier. So women have both expanded our social roles and also our professional roles. We've entered male-dominated professions. The opposite has not happened for men. The sort of social roles for men remain pretty much what they were 40 years ago. Maleness is still very tied up in being a breadwinner and providing for a family. And there are still jobs that are considered male jobs, and men have not crossed over into traditionally female jobs. You don't see male kindergarten teachers or nurses or home health aides. You see them every once in a while, but they are fairly rare, and they tend to be paid better than the women in those same jobs. So, I mean, I would love to see a kind of men's self-help book that asks, you know, what are men missing out on by 
keeping themselves kind of constrained into these fairly narrow roles? How are they missing out on the whole rest of their lives? And how are a lot of them, frankly, not living up to what probably is their full potential because they are so channeled into this one arena of providing? Okay, what is it that feminists are fighting for? And I think most feminists would tell you, well, we're fighting for equality. And that is what I will tell you half the time, too. But I don't know that we're going to be able to achieve it in a system that was not designed for us and that was designed, frankly, with us as kind of pillars to hold it up. And I don't know that we want to achieve it in this particular realm in which we are operating. I don't know that we just want women's lives to look exactly like men's lives. I mean, a lot of men aren't doing super well either. So if we don't want equality, then what, you know, and we're going to build kind of this house ourselves, what's the ultimate goal? And what if not a happy and meaningful life? I mean, what else is there? Why else are we on this earth? I don't think it's just toil away and not die. I think it's to have a life that is, you know, in pursuit of knowledge and fulfillment. And I don't think it's asking too much that we live in a society that helps lay the groundwork for that to happen. Again, wealthy white men have lived in a society where one function of government was to lay the groundwork for that to happen. And so I would just like to see that expanded for all of us. Instead of trying to fix ourselves on an individual level, we kind of realize maybe it's not like all of us who are broken. Maybe it is the system that we are operating in and living in. So maybe it is our political system and our laws and our institutions that need some serious rehab and not ourselves. Jill had strong opinions about happiness, pleasure, and feminism, and now I want to hear yours. Do you buy self-help books? I do, or I did. Jill's book helped me Marie Kondo my self-help book collection. I'd love to hear your opinions about this topic, so tweet me at popcultpirate or tag me in your posts on Instagram using at popculturepirate. We'll be back here next week with another episode, but in the meantime, check out our video channel based on this podcast at facebook.com slash held. And please subscribe to Strong Opinions wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Sarah Bernard and edited by Carrie Ann Thomas for Refinery29. Special thanks to Kat Moldina for her research help. We recorded with Paul Ruest, and we'll see you back here next Monday. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.